Welcome to the New Books Network. How commonplace is financial malpractice in big, well-known financial companies? Is it so common that it really should be seen more of a business model than an occasional aberration by rogue traders and others? These are questions posed by Ronan Palin and Anastasia Nesvatilova in their book Sabotage, The Business of Finance. Well, Anastasia, thanks very much uh, for joining us. Welcome. My pleasure, Owen. Thank you very much. And just to get a, a sort of initial idea of you know the themes in your book, you start with a story which is quite revealing, really, and, and sort of gives us the, the general area you're working in. It was Goldman Sachs in Libya. And the story comes from the news of the time. We were writing the book in 2020. So the news of the time were very much about current financial developments. And these news come from court hearings and the results of those court hearings between, in this case, the Libyan authorities and Goldman Sachs, the most revered firm in the financial system and an idol for many financial players, institutional and also individual. So the story goes, Libya, as a lot of commodity exporters, and in particular oil exporters, had a sovereign wealth fund. It's it's quite a common practice since about 1960s um, in in the developing world, but not only. So it had quite um, a nice sovereign wealth fund um, that was deemed to for national development. But of course, the business of any sovereign fund is to gain interest, to gain profits, to be profitable for the country that owns it. And in order to generate those profits, the managers of sovereign wealth funds have a fiduciary duty to get the investments right. The Libyan authorities were approached by Goldman Sachs uh, to pursue a particular set of financial strategies through very sophisticated, very new, very innovative financial instruments um, that sounded very clever. At the same time, they were very untransparent and they signed up the contracts. It's just that at the end of those transactions, the Libyan authorities lost most of the holdings in their sovereign wealth funds, but Goldman made um, a very hefty profit, about 200 million in profits from that particular trade. So it was a very asymmetric relationship but it's not a unique case of a particular financial giant profiting from lack of financial sophistication of its client. Exactly. So it's legal. It's just, you know, taking advantage of the client, really. Absolutely. If you want the scandal, it's not that any of this is illegal, although there are some more criminal cases that we document in the book. The scandal is that a lot of financial innovations that impoverish the ultimate Mm. customer are fairly legal. They they are built on exploiting legal loopholes, inadequate regulation, financial sophistication, and general opacity of the financial system. Right. You, you're basically saying that's not a one-off. You know that 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 this happens the whole time with with all sorts of clients. I mean, and and that and that lots of companies do it, right? Absolutely. Unfortunately, and it's a systemic trend. It's an industry trend. And in fact, that was the reason we started asking what is so special about finance as an industry? How can we understand the origins of these super profits, of this um, apparent immunity of big banks and big financial houses and very sophisticated asset managers that we are now so used to? Uh, we, we are, you know, the idea of too big to fail 
or too too interconnected to fail have become very commonplace um, post 2007-2009. It's in everyday jargon. It's very common for young graduates to um, want a lucrative job with Goldman or with any other bank or in the financial sector. Um, it's very common for major businesses to be owned, for example, by private equity firms that are notoriously underregulated, opaque, and have uh, questionable business practices. But it's it's a common it, it's it's a normality. So we questioned the normality, and we went for a particular explanation why finance should be taken and understood as a very special industry. Now then, it's not that companies doing this are never caught, right? They they do get caught out quite often. But your point is that the the punishments, the fines, the sanctions are, are, are you know not very significant. True. I will quote you a senior executive of a major bank in a major European country who told us it was 2008, the autumn of 2008, so just as financial houses were collapsing, it was weeks after Lehman went down. Um, and he told me um, that it would take him a few hours to put up a team of very well-trained lawyers, accountants, financial geeks, engineers, to put up a structure that would avoid any regulation that might come the bank's way. Right. So the business model is not just taking advantage of clients. It's it's doing so in a way that can't be punished. It's called, uh, if there is a sophisticated term for that, it might be called financial innovation. It could be called financial arbitrage. It could be called capital market arbitrage. It could be called um, corporate arbitrage. It could be called regulatory and, and financial innovation together or maneuvering. If you want, there is also a term used by... Um, a scholar in the UK, he calls it bricolage. The, the banks, you know, constantly they're engaged in this bricolage of setting up structures and schemes that would be super profitable, but would, would be, it, the profits would be there because they're exploiting regulatory loopholes. So yes, it's, um, to answer your question, it's much more profitable to pursue it, even if a punishment is in line, it's easier to pay a fine or, or to, to be somehow penalized in, in some other way than to miss on a huge profit opportunity. How long has this been going on? I mean, is it a new thing? Is it post-war? Is it, you know, in the, the 80s and all this, or, you know, all the movies about uh, high finance and people making incredible amounts of money, uh, you know, more recently? Or is it going back a long time? I think it will go back as long as finance has been with us and finance has been with us for for centuries. We do have a historical section in the chapter, but most poetically and instructively for today, the echoes of this financial mode practice and what we call market control. So the idea is that it's not just you're doing improper things in a particular industry. The idea for anybody, for any business, corporation, or a bank, or a financial house, you want to control the market. You want to control the market and not to allow others to do it. You don't want fair competition. You don't want necessarily transparency. You don't want any particular scrutiny. And you certainly don't want the government to dictate you the rules, but at the same time, you need the government to be there for you when you, if you go down. So that is called market control. And let me just say that in the last part of the book, we found amazing 
citations from actual court hearings. They go back to 1933-34 to a, a specific congressional committee set up in the U.S. to investigate the consequences of the stock market crash of 1929. And you would be amazed just how close the dialogue, if, if you just remove the dates from, from that transcript and put them into today, it could be a story about, for example, Credit Suisse or any any other institution that um, has been in news headlines recently. It's about market control and it's about impunity and inability of regulators to ensure market competition and market fairness. Now, then, is it slightly confusing that this should be happening? Because, you know, all sectors want to do this, don't they? I mean, from the people selling fake medicines, which has been going on forever, whether it's monopolies in any sector, people try and take advantage of that. You know, there's nothing really different about the motives of the people in finance than any other sector. And yet they seem to make quite obscene amounts of money more easily than others. Why is it different? You're absolutely right. The motives are the same. The means is different. People who are trade, or companies or people or, or corporations who trade more or less real stuff, you know, a kilo of rotten apples in your local supermarket or a, a faulty TV station that you would buy, you as a customer, you would be able to identify the fault fairly, I'm not saying quickly, but easily. Something would be visibly wrong. An apple would be rotten or you would get, God forbid, poisoning from a particular product, or your, your TV would not work, you have the ability to identify the problem. With finance, that ability is delayed. Usually, it takes some time for the information asymmetry, let's call it scientifically, to hit you. So even if, let's say you, you have a particular mortgage product, it looks very attractive and manageable for some time. The interest rate that you have to pay to your um, bank or your mortgage provider is low. But let's say there is a footprint in your contract that says in about four years, your interest rate goes up three times and you have no way of getting out of it, which is exactly what happened, by the way, with subprime mortgages back then in 2007. There were products that initially looked very attractive to new mortgage holders, but it was just that the clause in, in many of them, a footnote, predetermined that they would be fantastically disadvantaged and punished by interest rates uh, rise in um, 2006, which is exactly what happened. And these customers had no way of getting out of this contract, of replacing them, or, or sorry, and in the falling market of selling their own houses, which is the reason for foreclosure. So finance and money is an industry of promises. You pr you, you're buying a promise. You're buying a piece of the future. And that determines how well you can react to that information. Yeah, I can see that makes it, you know, unusual. But is it unique? I mean, since when you, when you were saying that, I was desperately trying to think of another sector where you'd, you know, also have a delay before you worked out that you'd been ripped off. But you must have thought about it. Is is there nothing else like it? I think there is a whole world of, let's call it, intangible property, the stuff that is not real that we cannot touch, contracts know-how, technology, uh, if you want viruses, vaccines. These things mostly are traded through very legal, they are artificial contracts, yes? They exist only either in digital space, in a virtual space, or on paper. You Fundamentally, you sell the right to own a particular service or industry. That is also problematic. 
yeah, so there are other areas where it may happen. I mean, I guess consultancy would be a thing where, you know, you wouldn't know the advice was bad advice till later. But anyway, you're saying that finance is particularly marked in this, you know, very profitable and huge sector of... of I would say, yes, I would say that finance is a constellation of, of those promises of ability to control, of ability to also reward, you know, you lure your customers, you... you you create products or services that do sound attractive and in many ways also I, sh I should say to be objective uh, that a lot of financial innovations we discuss in the book that historically would turn out to be disastrous for the world economy of a particular market like the famous CDO or, or a junk bond or anything else. Historically, they were created with a very specific market function. They were not created to cheat somebody. They were not made up to siphon money off uh, unsuspecting customers. They were there for a purpose. It's just that in the sociolog sociology of the markets, the way they were used and implemented, they became instruments of sabotage. Yeah, we're going to talk about those specific examples in a moment. But first, just to understand why, again, you know, another aspect of why people in finance get away with this stuff. I mean, yeah, many sectors are regulated, right? I mean, and, and it's one of the myths of so-called free market economics that everything's regulated. Uh, and yet regulation in this sector seems more difficult to do, easier to get around somehow. It seems less effective than, I don't know, regulation of drinking water supplies or food or drugs or all the rest of it. Absolutely true. In fact, finance or any, any financier or any compliance officer from a bank will tell you that finance is one of the most heavy regulated sectors globally. Lots of rules, lots of requirements, standards, uh, licenses, you know, that, and, and it's true. But because finance is a constellation of legal rights, so a financial instrument is first of all a contract between today and the future. So that's a legal instrument. A financial contract is a property title. It's between you and me or between an, a lender and a borrower. A financial instrument is evolving a sum of money. And often it also serves as a particular economic activity or service. So again, I often cite this example. If you do have a pet, a cat or a dog or, or a parrot, they are likely to be part of the financial system because your insurance on this pet that you would pay to an insurance provider is then entering the other fin the, the financial system through either securitization contracts or, or some other type of operations. But n nobody is outside of finance now. It's, it's, uh, we are so dependent on credit, on liquidity, on access to debt, on access to debt management on banking infrastructure, that it's it's a constellation of all sort of economic, strategically important economic and, and legal instruments that it gives finance this enormous power and the idea that, yes, they are too big to fail. They are publicly important institutions that go beyond simple economic function. Yeah. I mean, I'm just wondering whether the too big to fail thing, which is which was so real in 2008, wasn't it? And, and, and still again now. In fact, some of these quite small banks are being considered <laughs> too big to fail, like the Silicon Valley thing. It's not a big bank and yet too big to fail. So no, in, a, in other sectors, people are not too big to fail. Was that fair to say? Hmm. It's an interesting question. I think in finance, the big too big to fail now is not 
not a question at all. We, our policymakers assume that they need to guarantee financial stability. And that is, that is part of the reason that banks and other institutions pretty much have impunity in the good part of the economic cycle. They know they will be not punished by market discipline, let, let's put it this way. They may not necessarily be saved immediately, um, but they will, 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 not, will not face the market competition or the, the toughness of rules. They, are, they know they're important. They know they're too big to fail. They're also too rich to jail often, um, and they're very interconnected. And that's the use of their systemic power. And have you ever it's, seen evidence that they actually know that, you know, on paper? Because I've often wondered about that. You know, the, 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 this whole idea of them being too big to fail is out there. And yet the link between that and risky, irrational behavior is, is harder to pin down, I suspect. Or are, are you clear that, you know, there are boardroom discussions where they say, look, it's going to be fine. We can get away with this because if, if it goes wrong, we'll just get the government to bail us out. Uh, in fact, there are many of those. Uh, there are memoirs of financiers who retire or leave full of exactly those uh, citations and um, maybe not necessarily doc documents because usually they would sign a non-disclosure agreement. But there are simply too many from too, too many corners of the financial system to think that this is an, an isolated anecdote. So could you give us an example of that? In the book, we cite uh, one of the executives of Goldman. Uh, he actually published a book, I think it was called, um, the, the, a version of it was a, published as a letter to FT. It's a kind of a memo to youngsters who want to succeed in Goldman Sachs, how, how to do sabotage. There are, I think, 10 points about eat your elephant, find the most disadvantageous product that would... Um, harm your client and then sell it in the most attractive way and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, it, it exists. So there is a fascinating report by the New York Attorney General, I think, Guomo. It came in 2009 or 2010, and it's a table that lists all the failing American banks at the time. I think there are seven or ten of them with this massive losses. Each one of them made huge losses, some of them larger, some of them smaller. But in a separate line of the table, there are bonuses that were paid to staff in these banks, presumably to generate these losses. And it's systemic that all the failing banks have paid highest bonuses to their staff at the time of failing. Basically, the numbers tell, tell the story themselves. No, well, it sort of makes your blood boil. But I mean, my question was slightly more specific in that does the feeling that they're too big to fail lead to risky behavior? Can you pin that down? I, mean, I know they're doing risky behavior all the time, but can you pin it down to this sense they've got that they'll never have to pay a price for this? Let me answer this by not naming a particular bank who had recent difficulties. It had been in the financial news and news for the past few years. Staff from that bank had been telling me personally, but also others, and, and there were, it, it was a known kind of commentary in the industry, but also beyond to, to key stakeholders, that the bank is doing very bad things, that it's advising and uh, customers with very bad products. It offers products that would disadvantage a client on the other side. 
but it continues to, to do that. It was a very big bank. Right, so there really is a feeling of impunity, isn't there? At the end of the day, the bank did encounter difficulties, but the penalties were not commensurate with the, with the profits that it had registered during the problematic years of practice, let's call it this way. Yeah, because this is another feature of the whole area you're looking at, which which is that the the impact of these behaviours is so great. I mean, you think of the 2008 crash, it's changed the world, right, in a way that no other business has been able to do. Yeah, it's affected whole societies, the confidence of the West. You can ascribe lots of things to 2008. And yet, yeah, there's no sense of the regulatory system or the penal system dealing with that, yeah, being proportionate, basically. Absolutely, yeah. It, it could have been a major crisis. It could have been a transformation of governance structures uh, alike 1930s, the major reform effort of the time, which was aimed to avoid another Great Depression. And Great Depression was a very painful time for every participant in any economy. Um, so 2008 had that potential, but it wasn't acted upon in the end all the ambition of regulators. And I have to say, there were some blue sky thinkers at the time. They really questioned, maybe not the foundations of, you know, very financial system, but what public purpose should our banks serve? Should they be private institutions? Should should they should they have shareholder model? Are they service providers or are they profit-making corporations? So, yes, there, there were a lot of great ideas at the time, but only very few of them were eventually put to implementation. And then during the implementation, as a rule, they were diluted. So as a result, we 10 years onwards, or what is it now, 15 years onwards, we are in the financial world where we are now used to governments bailing out finan financiers. But it's a world of loopholes, of new innovation that came through since then, and new super profits. If you look at uh, uh, trends in, in, in key financial industries, uh, it's quite amazing. Actually, I was going to ask you about precisely what you're talking about a bit later, but let's do it now and then we'll <laughs> get on to the junk bonds and all the rest of it later. So, so just now, I mean, yes, it is so striking that after 2008, there was Dodd-Frank, wasn't that the one where they tried, it was, to, yeah. tried to regulate? And I heard an interview with former Congressman Frank the other day, who is now working for one of these banks, presumably advising them how to, <laughs> how to get past his own legislation. And and it, it, it just failed, right? I mean, that that, that was well-motivated legislation that, what, would you say didn't go far enough? It didn't, unfortunately. And and you're absolutely, absolutely right. It's ambitious. Uh, it was developed quite, you know, to an amazing scale, it was developed to detail. Uh, it had the right uh, motive. It had the right scope. It was aimed at an industry as a whole, not just particular banks. It looked at, at very specific um, problems. It also had... Uh, as far as I know, and I'm not a lawyer, but it, it had quite a, clearly a model of the 1930s type of regulation, how to avoid this market control, how to curb speculation and excesses, and how to make institutions accountable. But during the implementation under various presidential administrations in the US, it was the technical detail that was renegotiated. You know, if, if you regulate the entity in this territory, but you assign a transaction to an entity elsewhere, this transaction will be de facto unregulated. Or 
if you regulate a particular industry, but you make exempt several products or commodities, they will be left unregulated or underregulated, and that, that they, of course, will benefit a particular type of traders or institutions. And this is what happened. And this, this type of regulation wasn't internationalized. Uh, EU brought default the same model, but also with exceptions, particular qualifications, um, and um, the power of legal representation of the industry is very power is powerful now. It's, it's, it's vast, and it's difficult to act against it competently as a public servant at the time. You usually see the mistakes sometimes after the event. Yeah, well, is it surprising that it's so hard to do this? Because in, in political terms, there could hardly be a group of people who are uh, less you know, popular than bankers. So you'd have thought that any politician would be able to get public support for reining these people in. Why can't they do that? Well, there is an, uh, an objective reason. Finance is an industry of taking, managing, distributing um, and selling risks. And let's say you have a consortium of banks who are organizing a huge credit line for a building of a hospital somewhere in a developing country, or even not in a developing country, anywhere, a hospital. A hospital is a very costly and complex exercise. You need uh, several types of credit line. You need several types of instruments. You need several types of insurers. You need derivatives. You need, um, you need a whole lot of stuff. Who is the politician to decide which one, which which type of financial instrument is the good one to build the hospital, and which one will be used for something um, not so clean, for example? Usually, politicians uh, don't have that space. They have advisors. The courts in the U.S. who make rulings on on particular uh, questionable lines, they also have limited capacity. Let's say uh, there is a, a bank presenting the case. The bank says. Look, it's my duty to my shareholders to A, generate profits. It's my duty to my customers to lend. This is a new product that was just innovated by a very, very clever group of people that would allow me to deliver super profits to my, or let's say ample profits to my shareholders and great service to my customer. Please, uh, Mr. or Madam Judge, authorize this. Who is the judge to say? The, the, the discrepancy in knowledge about the consequences of a financial decision is vast. Tell us about the shareholder system. I've often uh, wondered about that because it is such a sort of foundational aspect of the whole of uh, you know, Western capitalist societies and, and uh, Western capitalism. And yet it, it seems to carry significant risks for society. Uh, did you look at that and what do you feel about the whole idea of shareholder democracy, so-called? From what I see in my work uh, in finance, shareholder model is important because it also allows some elements of transparency in some cases. And we have seen it um, when a minority group of shareholders pursued a particular cause or generally if, if some information about a group or financial group is made available by constitution to shareholders, and uh, you, you can already see what is happening. But it also is, um, I don't want to say it's an illusion, but it, it, it presents you only a partial picture of what's going on, especially in finance. So there are companies, for example, who are publicly owned, who need to, to supply their uh, corporate information and accounts, 
but it's not uncommon for multinational corporations and banks to run several subsidiaries at the, at the same time. These subsidiaries would have their own accounts, which would not be available or presented to shareholders. And you can have a bank with 60 uh, balance sheets. What, which one of the 60 would shareholders be seeing? Which of, the, which of them goes into the annual report? So it's um, it's an incredibly political question. It's a question of governance. I don't want to blame all the ills of the financial sector on sharehold shareholder model, but there is a there are two main elements of problematic behavior. One is cross ownership or how institutions own each other, and um, sources of sabotage and monopoly or market control come up. And another is this what I already cited in in these court cases if the if by decree if if want if you want by law the purpose of a bank is to deliver value to shareholders but not usefulness to society then it becomes an issue then it, it falls on shareholders to say are we against you know is our interest us or are we against societal outcome if, if we do have super dividends or super profits this year, but it generates a crash in, in the year that follows, where is this where is this responsibility? Yeah. Uh, well, why don't you just uh, run us through some of the more sort of egregious things that have happened in the past, just to give us a sense of uh, more of these cases. And you, you mentioned junk bonds. Talk us through what they were and how that whole thing worked. Junk bonds, if... <laughs> If you want a crash course and a very nice story of that, um, the movie called Wall Street is based on, on the actual story and life of junk bond inventor Michael Lucan. Junk bonds were invented by him. He was a, a trader in one of the institutions in, in Wall Street in the 80s. It was an instrument that was used for failing companies in the time to raise capital. So nobody, they didn't have any uh, space in the market. Nobody wanted them. They were, they were seen as failing. But he, um, his name was Michael Milken. He was then put into prison. But the idea was quite clever. He said, maybe not all of you are failing. Maybe with the right type of capital and credit, you can still um, be recovered. And he offered keen investors who were prepared to take the, that risk and means to do that. It became called the junk bond, but I think initially it was called something else. And now I'm sorry, I forgot. And it worked for some time. It actually worked as a proper financial instrument, delivering capital to these companies. And it was an important market innovation. It actually served a social purpose, if you want, an economic efficiency purpose. But during its use, it became so popular and widespread. And at the time, it was also underregulated. It was the 80s that insider trading was thriving. And ultimately, it was the insider trading deals that would crush uh, his own career, um, that would put him in, into criminal proceedings and ultimately in jail. But junk bonds still exist as instruments. That's the irony of it. Well, that's very interesting. So it wasn't really the junk bond in itself. It was more the insider trading and, and all the stuff that went on around it. Exactly. So with all the three major innovations that we have in the book, we discuss in the book, it's, it's actually the pattern. They were all invented with a particular purpose, and nothing in that purpose was criminal or antisocial or essentially bad. It was a useful instrument. It was an instrument that suited particular needs of a market or, or a bank or an institution. 
but it was the way it was spread in the market, used by other agents, and if you want, abused by some, that then would become a problem. Because you just described junk bonds, and they say one of the other ones is credit default swaps, and you're saying they're like that too. Credit default swaps is is now a classic story. The best book on the subject is probably by Gillian Ted, The Fool's Gold. Uh, she, she charts the sociology of this invention and, and its use. And from that, but also from other documents, you can see that the innovation of, of the contract, because CDO is essentially a contract, it was very useful for a particular bank at the time. It was uh, an instrument kind of innovated by a team at JP Morgan, a bank that had been um, a little bit behind the fashion curve in the industry at the time. It was around 1995. And al although the initial idea came from their predecessors, from, from a different bank in Wall Street, they really put their minds together to come up with a quite an ingenious solution to how to use capital. And the idea was that they understood that part of J.P. Morgan's um, slowness in the market, the unfashionable position in the market, was that they were too rigid in their use of capital in order to be more innovative, in order to be able to, to do the new things that everybody else was doing. They needed to be able to use capital in a regulated and permissible way. And in order to do that, you needed to free up your balance sheet from the regulatory burden because a lot of money was parked for regulatory compliance. And the team said, look, if we manage to sell the risk associated with this capital onwards, we have the capital to play with. We will have all the required credit and loans and investables to, to pursue new lines of business and, and become more profitable again. And so they came up with this contract and the idea was really very ingenious. Let's say you're a bank lending to a, a huge major corporation, the like of Pepsi or Coca-Cola or Procter & Gamble. Um, what is the likelihood that that corporation, your Pepsi or Coca-Cola or Procter & Gamble, is going to go bankrupt? Just tell me, as a student, let's say we have a dialogue. Well, very, very little. I mean, very little. They're exactly. massive, massive companies that are going to go very well. Exactly. So these are real companies. Everybody knows them. They have a product. Their markets seem to be growing. They've been there for, for decades, if not centuries. And now I, I come up with an idea. We say, Owen, let's try to, let's pay somebody to insure us against a default of this super blue chip company. Do you think an insurer can be found for that? Uh, I presume. Exactly. So such an insurer was found. It was American Industrial Group, AIG. And it very willingly you know, took the money for an insurer's contract. It was essentially free money because none of those corporations at the time was deemed as risky. And the practice uh, helped JP Morgan to uh, thrive in, in the industry. It really changed the market. It became very useful for their own purposes of balance sheet management. It was profitable for the AIG. And overall, there was nothing particularly wrong with this contract. It was just a new innovative way to manage risk. But then when by accident, similar contracts were starting were started to be issued for mortgages and subprime mortgages and bundles of subprime mortgages by other people in the industry, not necessarily JP Morgan itself, then it became systemically problematic. 
because that was a different type of risk. It was not an instrument invented necessarily for mortgage insurance and definitely not for subprime mortgage insurance. And overall, it became a snowball of risk that, that imploded in, into, in 2007. Right, but that's more serious than what you just said about the junk bonds, because the junk bond thing was uh, just illegal yeah, activity, sure. you know, and illegal sure, activity sure. is illegal activity. But this, you're saying, is more systemic in that it was a, a just crazy risk management, right? And, and... It was crazy risk management. Yes, it was both, I have to say, at micro right. level of uh, new banking clients in the US who were given these super attractive mortgage contracts um, with no documents, or sometimes the documents would be forged because commission was too high. These were illegal practices. This is criminal activity. You, you cannot forge document. You say that, but I must say, I mean, one of the stunning things in your book is these accounts of very major financial institutions instructing their staff on how to forge signatures. Yeah, that was one of the major British banks at the time. Indeed, that was the practice. It's, it's the big bank that got caught, but can you imagine what was happening in small institutions that disappeared? Um, there is another British bank that uh, was implicated in a very strange deal. It was Northern Rock. It was number five bank in the UK at the time. It went down and its own kind of securitization scheme was discovered to be owned by a Down Syndrome charity in the north in Newcastle, basically. And the Down Syndrome charity in Newcastle was a charity run by several ladies with children with Down Syndrome. They had no idea they owned a bank or a financial structure. And when I asked my uh, friends and colleagues in the industry, kind of, what do you think about that? You know, this is a charity being used for a securitization, um, very dodgy securitization scheme. And uh, one of the securitization officers at the time told me, well, yes, it could be immoral, but it's not abnormal in the industry. A lot, a lot of structures use that. None of those practices, apart from the British Bank instructing their staff to forge signatures or to forge documents. In fact, it was much later on in the US, one of the, again, major banks in 2015, it was discovered, it forged several millions of fake client accounts. It actually created them out of nothing. Can you imagine? This is after 2010. This is after the regulation, and this is after financial misdoings became public. So this is a major U.S. bank with, with managers creating fake accounts in order to grab either commissions or profits. And, and just to sort of really get us back to where you started, you're saying this is not that unusual, that the, the, this whole sector is riddled with this kind of malpractice. It's riddled, and I would say it's embedded in it because we're dealing in money, finance, and promises. And the more intangible money becomes, the more likely this uh, type of behavior becomes. Well, that, that takes us on to the future of this. And, you know, it, it's pretty clear that there's not any prospect of politicians getting control of this, that, as you say, the, the systems become ever more sophisticated and therefore opaque. I mean, there's very little good news looking ahead, isn't it? Well, let me try to be a little bit more optimistic, if you want. So one of the results of some regulate, regulatory effort in 2010 is that we as public, they as regulators, policymakers as our representatives, we all know that we need to know more. Okay, So part of the problem back in, 20, in 2007 was that 
to be honest, nobody bothered about information about markets or finance. It was supposed to be self-regulating, delivering efficiency and functioning very well. And then suddenly part of the problem became is that the key people in charge of the system didn't know what, what the system was. So there was a phenomenon called shadow banking. It's still very much with us. It increased during the time between then and now. But at the time, nobody had a clue. They, they, they were regulating the banks. But it turned out that half, the other half of the financial system, the banks were only a minor part of it. The majority of, of finance in the US at the time was shadow banking connections and institutions and systems. Now, nobody knew about them and they didn't count. So the positive outcome, if you want, is that we know that we, we do need to know more. We are looking for data. In fact, there is more data being provided. There is certainly more data that systemically important financial institutions need to supply. They have to go through various stress tests. They have to report. And they also are more prepared for public scrutiny, which wasn't common before 2007. But you're absolutely right that in other parts of outside of these big, important systemically systemic financial institutions, this type of analysis regulation is very slow to emerge. Usually it emerges through crises. So once policymakers or some public authority have to pay for something or they have to uh, rescue or decide or make a decision on a major financial implosion, then some institutional reform starts. But unfortunately, it takes a major and a very painful crisis to move that way. Yeah, and even then it's limited, right? I mean, it, 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 that's the experience, that it's, it's not really very effective. It's not effective because the innovation usually happens on the margins. The negotiation and the exception is negotiated on the margins. And yeah, finance is built on technicality, on legal nuance, and on sophistication of financial contracts themselves. So the public, by definition, is, is structurally at a disadvantage. Society, okay? That's, that's, the, that's a structural condition. I hope you get a job as a central bank governor. <laughs> Thank you. It'll be a very tough job. A lot of uh, because central banks now, if if that's another transformation over the past few decades, central banks are now in charge of a lot of things. They had to go not only through that crisis; they had to navigate the economies through COVID, post-COVID recovery, coordinate internationally. They, of course, although they're independent, but a lot of this independence is. Um, kind of nominal because they, they are taking a lot of political considerations into account. So um, there is even a term in literature saying we all live in central bank capitalism, that the actual authorities who decide for us the parameters of our economic growth are the central bankers. And you, we can see it very painfully now when they are hiking interest rates. Well, thank you very much for talking. It's, it's, it's a complicated area, and you're very, very clear the way you explain it. And, um, you know, it, it matters to all of us. So we're very grateful to you. Thank you. Thank you very much.